Welcome to the Spot Check. Join your resident occupational and speech therapist, Amelia and Heather, as they dive in and get real with patients and clinicians about living with chronic disease. Hey, welcome back to the Spot Check with Amelia and Heather. Welcome back, guys. It is Thanksgiving week, and we want to first thank you all for being here with us on our journey, and thank you for the guests that we've had so far and our upcoming guests. And we would just want to take a little minute to tell you kind of what we're grateful for and share a little bit of our gratitude. Um, Amelia, what are, what are you grateful for this week as we reflect, wow, back upon this interesting year of 2020? I think I'm grateful that we can start our OT fellowship program this year in the midst of pandemic. And we have actually three applications. I was very surprised because it was a pandemic and it was a very different experience for us. Also very thankful for, I guess, all of my friends and family who have been staying well throughout the season. I'm thankful that my mom has not been affected at all health-wise and because she's older. So I'm just thankful of that. What about you, Heather? Yeah, so many things. I am thankful for, first and foremost, my health, which has been an interesting roller coaster for a few years, but I'm thankful for my health. I'm thankful for good friends who see potential and help push me and push others. I'm talking about Amelia here, but push others to strive to be better and do better and be better for other people in the world, whether that be patients, colleagues, complete random strangers at a store, just just to be our better versions of ourselves. And I'm really thankful for the hundreds and thousands of healthcare workers out there that go to work every day. And we know the risks, but we go there anyway, because that's what we do. We're there for the people that need us. And just thank you. Thank you all in whatever capacity you're out there doing and helping those who need us, whether you're educating through a podcast, through a research article, or you're on the front line. That's what I'm grateful for this Yes, year. and just to add on that, because I'm thinking about my friend who's a teacher, I'm thankful for all the teachers. I mean, they've been called lazy and not accommodating, but I feel like teachers are some of the underappreciated profession of the century just because they work so hard. Mm -hmm. also risk themselves by going to work. And I don't think the amount of work that they have to do are imaginable. So thank you all. To any of the teachers out there, we just thank you. Preach, sister. Another random fact of Heather, I actually worked in a high school for three years, many years ago. And I was in college and oh my gosh, teachers. Y'all, y'all get no respect. And thank you so much for what you do. And especially right now, there is no way I could try to wrangle a class of 10, 20, 30, 40 kids on Zoom. Yeah. God bless you all. Thank you so much. So let's get to it. So we've been talking about thyroid cancer this last episode with Alyssa. And I'm grateful for Alyssa for sharing her story with us and the details uh, that she had to go through discovering her thyroid cancer and her treatment. I thought her her story about the radioactive pill was very interesting. I've heard that before where you have to kind of like separate yourself and find the biggest car possible for you to go to the hospital. But just her sharing it, I was like, oh yeah, I mean, give me a visual of what's actually going on. I see people who've had the effects of treatment on thyroid cancer because that is my world in that area with the thyroid because the thyroid connects with your vocal cords and there can be a lot of issues there, which we'll talk about briefly here in just a few minutes. I feel like we kind of minimize what patients go through from 
diagnosis to treatment and then just the effects of all of that and what you have to do. It's not just a matter of getting the diagnosis and then, okay, I'm going to go take this pill or I'm going to go receive some radiation. No, it's taking this tablet. It's having to run and get in your car and then isolate yourself away from your friends and family. Eat a special diet is like legit. Not to mention all the appointments that you have to make and coordinate. I mean, I have heard some of my patients like, oh, you know, I can't miss this call because otherwise we're going to play a phone tag and I really need to make this appointment or I really need to reschedule this appointment. Their lives are run by appointments because they have this doctor here, that doctor there, therapy appointments. I mean, their lives is revolve around their appointments during their cancer journey. Right. Well, I mean, come on. You know what it's like just waiting to get a call back for like a prescription refill, let alone a life-changing discussion with your doctor about an appointment for, for cancer treatment. Come on. Yeah. And just like what even Carissa shared with us a while back, you know, like it's deciding what treatment route you want to go to, because sometimes there are options and the doctor has given that option back to the patient, but they have to do their own research in the midst of the diagnosis. And what I am just even more impressed by and have to take pause and really reflect on what would I do at that age? How do you make these decisions and have such poise and positivity, I guess is the best word at the age of 20, when you're in the midst of going to school, deciding on graduate school, your mom has already been through this. That was very humbling for me to kind of think back and think of where I was at 20 and what what would I have done? I think I probably would have cried all the time. Just remembering when I I I was very emotional when I was 20. And I kind of wonder if just watching her mom went through the journey has allowed her to have that strength of knowing that, okay, there is an end to this. She probably drew strength upon herself to like, okay, I know I'll be okay. Good point. Good point. I'll share a quick story. When I was 21, 22, I want to say I was going through my annual visit and they felt something strange when they did my breast exam. And so they said, hold on a minute. And they came back in with another doctor. And they said, hold on a minute. And they came back in with another one. And there was probably, I don't know, five, six different people that came in and (laughs) felt around on me. And I was by myself. And they said, well, we're not sure what we're feeling. So we want to send you to a specialist. So I'm like 21, 22. I'm by myself. And I was internally freaking out. They told me not to worry. Oh, don't worry. It's probably just fibrotic tissue. It's probably just normal. People get this. But when you're, you know, you don't know any different and you're, I think it maybe even if you do, I was internally freaking out. I thought this was a death sentence. I had no idea what to expect. I, you know, wasn't in school yet because I didn't go to college till later in life. I thought, okay, this is it. Like this, this is it. I have cancer. This is going to be, I don't even know what to think. So they got me set up with the breast cancer or breast specialist and I was terrified. And of course it was like a month and a half, two months out. Now, fortunately, my best friend, she just didn't even ask. She just said, I'm going with you to the appointment. No, no questions asked. She just was going with me. Fortunately, it, it was just some fibrotic tissue apparently that just kind of changes over time. But that has always just lasted with me and stuck with me. And still to this day, when I feel anything kind of funky, I remember and I flash back. And I think back when Alyssa was talking with us, what if that had been positive? 
how would I have handled it? And what what would I have done? And would it have been the same way Alyssa had, had been? I, I, I don't think it would have been the same way. I don't think I would have reacted the same. Like I said, I probably would have been a mess. So speaking of thyroid cancer, you know, people hear about it. We don't talk about it a whole lot. Do you have some statistics for us, Amelia? I do, because I just know very little about thyroid cancer. So I have to research it because, you know, we're nerds here. So... <laughs> We do the research so you don't have to. Exactly. But you should anyway. Yes, because it's really easy with Google nowadays. But I didn't know that thyroid cancer will be affecting about 53,000 adults every single year. And that thyroid cancer is the fifth most common cancer in women. Mm, okay. And it's breast cancer and probably gynecological cancer is somewhere in between. But this statistics kind of surprised me because they were in it. And this is from cancer.net. And they're saying that this disease will be the most commonly diagnosed cancer in people age 15 to 29. Oh, so wow. I didn't realize that thyroid cancer affected younger people. I have no idea. And just kind of like out of random, you know how I can be very random sometimes, yeah. searching um, about nuclear plants and the effect of living nearby a nuclear plant. Oh, interesting. Okay. To health. And what I find is in the Miami-Dade County or region, there is an increase in thyroid cancer in children because there is a nuclear plant nearby. Oh, interesting. So that said, I mean, I haven't done more digging, so I'm going to dig some more. But I kind of wondered about it because why would this affect younger women, you know, like in their 20s? Because according to the statistics, the number of new cases in women in their 20s is five times higher than men in their 20s. And apparently it is the most common cancer in men aged 30 to 39. So, I mean, I'm not trying to make up some stories, but, you know, I like to think and... Wait, 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 wait. So you said, okay, so repeat that number for the women and then the men. So the number of new cases for women in their 20s is five times higher than for men in their 20s. Oh, wow. Thyroid cancer affect women three times more than it affect men anyway to right. begin. But it is very common for women in their 20s. But then for the men, thyroid cancer is the most common cancer for them at the age between 30 to 39. So it kind of posts you to think, you know, what is happening with women in, in their 20s and men in their 30s psychologically, physiologically, emotionally possibly that may have made them more prone to this type of cancer. Hmm. Is it a hormone issue? You know, I am not sure. I think it's interesting. And I feel like I feel like I should I should know, but I, I know more about like squamous cell carcinomas than I do thyroid cancers. I do see and treat people after thyroid cancer surgeries because they typically will have difficulties with their voice and swallowing, but interesting. What else did you find in your in your research, Amelia? I think I find, I mean, you know, like when a thyroid cancer is localized, their survival rate is between 98 to 100%. So that is really good news because it is very treatable when it's localized and found early. Again, early intervention is always best. However, when it's spread, they call that the regional thyroid cancer, the survival rate is between 12% to 99%. 99% is regional papillary thyroid cancer, but when it's called regional anaplastic thyroid cancer, the rate, the survival rate is 12%. Hmm. 
However, that is also the rarest type of thyroid cancer, which only makes up about 5% of thyroid cancer. Alyssa mentioned several times and was very passionate about that thyroid cancer is definitely a cancer. And many people kind of minimized it or didn't see it in that same category as other cancers. And I wonder if it's because it doesn't get as much attention or because of that 99% survival rate. I think that's probably, you know, like 99% survival rate. And not only that, there's not as much changes that you can see from the outside, right? I mean, thyroid cancer, usually when you get diagnosed early, just like Melissa, you had a procedure to take your thyroid and people just take Synthroid nowadays to replace that, which according to my functional medicine doctor, Synthroid only replaces, I think either the T3 or T4, but you actually have six different types. I met a functional medicine doctor who strongly felt that not only should you be replacing the Synthroid, but you should be also supplementing with Leothyroid. Leothyroid? Leothyroid. Anyway, it's two different ones as well. Yes. I think you don't really think about the effects of having your thyroid removed because they make it so, okay, you just get it done in a small cut and you won't even feel like something is missing. When you have your tongue taken out part of it or when you have your breasts removed, I mean, that is a significant part of your body that you feel right away. But when it's thyroid cancer, I mean, it's a small cut and most people don't even know that you have it done. But I think one thing that I learned from taking Dr. Perry Nicholson course, the lymph mojo, is that his own journey of having his thyroid removed is what led him to discover that the lymphatic system is so important to clear up the toxin in his own body. Because he was saying that he got, you know, his, his thyroid, thyroid were removed when he was um, in his 30s, I believe. And then his body started feeling the effects of it when he feels more sluggish. He started keeping the weight on and he doesn't feel like he can function 100%. So that's what led him to start clearing his lymphatic system, researching that and start practicing that for himself, where he actually feels like his immune system improved. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that's how he got started. Mm -hmm. Because he shared a story in our class because, you know, like he is a chiropractor, a functional movement practitioner, but what led him to look into functional medicine and then the lymphatic system is his own journey with not having thyroid. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Well, and I don't think people often realize, you know, they hear that they're going to have to supplement with a thyroid medication, but I don't know in talking with a lot of my patients, they don't realize this is a forever. It's lifetime. And it's not just, okay, you're going to take your 0.25, whatever it is. And that is not the set amount. It is constantly, uh, you have to adjust it and it's a fine tuning and it doesn't just, okay, now you're at 50 and that's it. It's like uh, you constantly have to adjust it as you, as you age, there's a lot of different factors. And with that, there becomes different factors as well with your health that we can get into another time, but that's a whole other issue. In your practice, Amelia, what are some of the consequences you see of thyroid cancer or what are some of the things you treat status post-thyroid cancer treatment? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I have a patient who has thyroid cancer. So typically, they don't really get referred for OT or for lymphedema therapy because I think it doesn't really affect them in the same way. When I was talking to Alyssa before our interview, like she doesn't have any swelling 
what she has was just minimal scar tissue and stiffness in her neck. Interesting. Okay. Things don't typically trigger a healthcare professional to refer them to lymphedema therapist or to OT. Good to know. So for speech therapy, we typically see these patients after they get, after they've recovered, they go back to the doctor and they're having difficulty usually with their voice. So they're usually having some hoarseness. They're usually at the end of the day, their voice gives out, they're hoarse, their voice has changed, they don't quite sound the same, and or they're having difficulty swallowing. And that reason is because the recurrent laryngeal nerve is is right there and it runs right through that thyroid area. And frequently there can be laryngeal nerve, recurrent laryngeal nerve paralysis. And that can lead to vocal cord paralysis. And that's super important in your swallowing because your vocal cords really need to work properly to close to help keep well, to help keep everything out of your airway when you swallow. But there's other issues or there's other things that they do when we swallow. But that's usually the biggest thing that happens is there is something that happens with that recurrent laryngeal nerve. So what's interesting, best practice, (laughs) which I, I don't know what the percentage is, but I can tell you it's probably very small. Best practice would be is these patients get referred to a speech pathologist uh, pre-thyroidectomy to be assessed for voice and swallowing function immediately before surgery. Now, you know, that's like the unicorn pie in the sky. That would be like in a perfect world, but typically that doesn't happen. So like that pre-therapy assessment, you should look at those kind of treatment goals and look at, okay, what is your voice looking like now? What does your swallow look like now? Let's face it, you know, that doesn't happen. Nope, it doesn't happen. For those of you that are interested, there are some different voice assessment measures that you can take um, that are pretty easy, some patient-reported measures that I can post for you. But we all know the Vocal Handicap Index, but there's a couple other ones that I think are pretty helpful and, and very good. The Cape V, which a lot of us use, which we should be using. OTs, I know, you, and any physical therapist or anyone else, you probably don't know, but um Happy to post and so you guys can kind of look at this as well. But it's it's a really good, interesting overview of like voice. Yeah, no, I think it's kind of interesting because if you think about the ages of the patients, right, when the, the, they are diagnosed with thyroid cancer, women in their 20s and men in their 30s, those are the busiest time of someone's life. I mean, traditionally, women in their 20s are getting started with their career or having children, getting married, and men in their 30s are at the peak of their career also. I kind of wonder how many of them actually would go to therapy, number one, if they got referred, and number two, just take on whatever the side effects of thyroidectomy and having thyroid cancer as life, as their new normal, as their new, new norm. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it's just minimal hoarseness. I'm not, I'm not going to go to therapy because it's going to cost me like $100 per visit or my deductible is too high because during that time, most people will choose a healthcare plan that has higher deductibles. I met somebody, my patient last week, the deductible was $7,800. Oh my gosh. So every visit for therapy that she had to go through, she has to pay $200 per visit until she meets her deductible. That is so much. Uh-huh. So if you think about m- most men and women in their 20s and 30s, unless they have a full-time job, they may not have a healthcare plan, or they may be under their parents' plan, which is great. But also if they have their own healthcare plan, I mean, how many young women and men would actually pick one that has good 
deductible, right? Because I mean, no. we're in healthcare, so actually our plan is not terrible. I mean, our yeah. deductible is between $500 to $1,000. But most plans out there, their deductible for their cheaper plan is between $4,000 to $10,000. And it goes up to $15,000 for a family. Wow. So the reality is how many people will actually go to therapy even if they're referred? Not many, I would think, until until something is like very critically affecting them. Yeah. And, and you know, really the literature shows that most patients do not come to therapy until it's, obviously it's affecting them and it's usually their voice. Even the swallowing, they unless it's major, they don't really notice it or they minimize it. Typically, the patients that I have seen have been after surgery and it's been some months, like six months or more. And it's like their voice has gotten so bad that their hoarseness and their vocal fatigue, at the end of the day, they almost have no voice to where it's affecting their school performance because they can't talk in lectures or give reports, give presentations, or they're already working and out in the workforce and it's affecting how they're able to communicate at their jobs. So it's really affecting their functioning level. Right. Now let's go back to, let's just say the diagnosis of within 15 and 29, you know, how many people will actually connect their dis- voice dysfunction in their 30s or 40s to something that happened to them when they're 19, right? Because I mean, I'm just thinking like... Not many, especially especially the men. Women are usually, and this is just personal observation from years of doing this, but typically the men are clueless. Like they will say, I don't know. my, And it's usually that if they're married, it's usually my wife complains she can't hear me and my, my voice has changed or my voice is hard to hear. So then we do our investigation. Have you ever had any surgery to the head or neck area? Oh yeah. When I was younger in college, I had this thing in my thyroid and so they had to take it out but that that wasn't a big deal I was fine after a couple weeks they don't realize that that was a major thing that happened right I think because of how sophisticated our surgical procedure nowadays we minimize the impact of losing a body part from surgery I mean removal of thyroid removal of gallbladder I mean removal of kidney I mean I used to see it all the time and I never make the connection you know until I took Dr. Paris course and realize how all the body parts contribute to my immune system. Like I just see it everywhere in their medical history, gallbladder removal, right? Or kidney removal or thyroid removal. I mean, so many people have thyroid removal. I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, is there any long-term study that follow these patients and see what is their healthcare outcomes after 20 years, three years? I need to research it because I don't know. So well, if there's any spot checkers out there that know and have done the research, hit us up, let us know, because I would love to know as well. I'm the firm believer of we have been given these body parts for a reason. They're supposed to be there and they do things to protect, to function, to help us in our everyday lives. And when we remove them, there are consequences and they may be multi-tiered consequences that we may not even think about. So to me, thyroid, okay, it helps with our thyroid stimulating hormone. It helps with our voice. It helps protect, you know, <laughs> it houses all of these nerves and functions in here in our neck. But there's other, there's other issues as well. So when I think about, when I asked you about if you see patients 
with thyroid removal, one of the things I was thinking about is when we are voicing, when we are producing voice. So, you know, voice production, moving our vocal cords to a higher pitch or lower pitch, we contract our sternohyoid and sternothyroid muscles, so our strap muscles. And that can create like a whole effect even further down and even coming down to like our clavicle region. And you can have this effect that comes down even across to your shoulders, this tension and this this imbalance, including the effect of the scar tissue. I frequently think about how are we treating that and are we making referrals to the people that can really help us with that scar tissue, myofascial release that type of thing, if we are not knowledgeable or trained in that type of manual technique to help these patients, do we know who can do it? And do we know who to refer to? Right. Most OT and speech therapists, because of the diversity of the things that we do, we don't necessarily graduate from our school comfortable with manual therapy techniques. No. So I think I was asked recently on my Instagram post when I was posting about cupping and um, plunger and how it contributes to manual therapy. An OT student asked me, like, what does it do? I mean, how how is it OT? Mm. So manual therapy is not traditionally part of what we teach as OT. However, I think of us, you know, like speech therapists, like helping someone gain their voice again or their ability to swallow, ability to process their life. And occupational therapy, like as our role to help somebody to return their normal daily living. I mean, I think manual therapy is part of that toolbox because if somebody can't move their tongue to eat and to swallow, I mean, who's going to do it for them, right? Yep. And that's what I think what kind of drive both of us to learn about myofascial release from different people and to learn about taping techniques, not mm-hmm. because it is truly the heart of our profession, but it's because we know how impactful those interventions can be for our patients so that they can actually go back to what they want to do. Because without hands-on intervention, like the changes that happens because of surgery, radiation, neurological changes, sometimes can't just return by itself by means of practice, practice, practice. 100% agree with you. I think of it as an accompaniment or part of the ingredient as part of the recipe list or a seasoning. Like this is my recipe. And sometimes I might take out an ingredient or add an ingredient. But my recipe for your success is not built upon one or two ingredients. As you know me, I am very hands-on. I don't feel like I can actually help someone or treat someone, especially with a functional disorder, like a impairment of the musculature. If I don't feel it, I don't, I don't sense it. I don't know how it moves. And if I'm not getting in there to actually make change, and I'm sitting across a desk and I'm just looking and saying, uh, your tongue looks a little bit weak over there. Uh, yeah, okay, that looks fine. Hey, how, how do I actually know if I'm not touching it, feeling it? And I notice some people, yeah, grabbing a hold of someone's tongue is yucky. It's gross. It doesn't feel good. But that's what you're there for. That's my two cents. <laughs> well, absolutely. Because, you know, part of the head and neck lymphedema class and certification, or I guess it's not really a certification, it's more a head and neck class, lymphedema, right? We get a course because there's really no certification for head and neck lymphedema at this point. So intraoral and manual lymphic drainage is something that we were taught, you know, how to manipulate someone's tongue, someone's mouth, and to just work on the internal swelling. 
And it takes me a couple of years before I actually feel really comfortable. And even with that, I mean, I would say that it's not until the last year where I really start working on people's tongue and people's jaw, like combining what I know from the head and neck lymphedema class with what I learned from John Barnes fascia cranium class, because I mean, I mean, John Barnes is a genius in using people's body part and waiting for the fascia to release together. I think it just makes such a wonderful intervention where now I can comfortably go to someone's jaw and just like work on the inside. It does because it's outside of our wheelhouse. Like it's not something that usually OT would do. But if you think about oral care and how much stuff is stuck on those internal swelling. A lot. A lot of stuff. So that's something that we can address as OT is self-care, cleaning those mouth. If there is swelling in the mouth, cleanliness is almost going to be like very difficult. I think I just fell in love with you a little bit more, Amelia. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like I just like, that's why I wear double glove whenever I work on someone's mouth because you'll never know what you're going to find inside. So double glove, yes. I guess you make up a very good point there. Double glove, because let me tell you, teeth can be sharp. You can always just like accidentally run your teeth against an incisor and uh, rip that glove. So double glove. Absolutely. Quick question. When you started doing myofascial and actually managing and handling tongues, was it a little weird for you at first to actually feel that bulk of a tongue? It's kind of weird, right? It is really weird, but it was very interesting because, you know, like applying neural learning principles is that most people after radiation or partial removal, partial surgery of their tongue, I realized that they become, I mean, part of their tongue become paralyzed, just like my patient who has a stroke with their arm who has paralyzed. So like the half side of the tongue is a little thicker than the normal side of the tongue, if that makes sense, right? I mean, I know it makes sense Mm -hmm. to you. And then once you start scraping down a little bit, then you see the scar tissue, you can feel it, that it's way tighter compared to their other side who may not be affected. So that area of scarring is actually holding, tethering the tissue down so they can't move their tongue to the other side normally. And that can cause jaw issue because, you know, when you're trying too hard, you're like start locking your jaw or you start moving your jaw all the way around to get that movement. So discovering that was probably the last six months. I'm like, okay, this is very fascinating. So I start working on myofascial release to the jaw and then their jaw start, you know, in the John Barnes class, we would call it unwinding, which means that it just responds to your touch and it starts going all over the place to release the tension that it has. That's what John Barnes teaches is that if you give the body a chance, it will tell you where it needs to go, which is very fascinating. So anyway, that can be another topic. Absolutely. But public public service announcement to all practitioners, have your patient move their tongue side to side, stick it out, move side to side. If they cannot do it without keeping their jaw stable, there is a floor mouth issue that needs to be looked at and addressed. I will actually tell my patients, I'm like, no, 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 let me hold your jaw for you. And if they can't do it, there is an issue there. And we need to, we need to closely look at that. Absolutely. Because sometimes with the, with Heather said, with the jaw movement, especially when they have the mandibulectomy and they have a reconstruction of their jaw, like there is a tethering of scar in that side. And obviously they also have extra screws sometimes in different parts of their jaw. So yes. And if they don't learn to isolate the movement, they will just keep using their jaw ineffectively and it's going to cost them to have TMJ dysfunction. It's TMJ dysfunction. It's like, it's probably not a great analogy, but it's like trying to get your leg 
a tethered leg to move. Like imagine if you like put your legs together or your arms together and the one that's not as functional, you're just kind of taking your functional one and just pushing it together and you're not allowing that impaired side to actually move and build itself. You're just helping it along because you're not isolating it. Right. That's why it didn't click to me until this year when I started, oh, this is just like my patient have a stroke. We need to teach that one side, give them a re-education, maybe even sensor simulation, myofascially to get them move again so then they can work together as a pair. Because unlike an arm is completely isolated from the other arm, the tongue, unfortunately, is together. (laughs) So you can't move one side without the other side interrupting. I always goes back to goals. Think about what you're doing. One last thing I will mention about the actual procedure and treatment and surgery of thyroid and thyroidectomy. Please don't forget about possible intubation trauma and endotracheal tube trauma that can happen because it does happen. That can be an issue in and of itself. One last thought as we kind of wrap up for this <laughs> B-roll for, for the thyroid cancer discussion. We discussed with Alyssa the possible effects of stress in cancer. And Alyssa talked about how she was going through so much stress at that time. You know, she was in school. She had a lot going on with her family. She was doing volunteering at the hospital. She had a lot of stuff going on. So we discussed that just briefly, but I wanted to follow up with that. There is actually a lot of research out that correlates stress and cancer. And there, I will link to this, but there's a great article from MD Anderson. It's, it's a quick read. Stress has a profound impact on how your body's systems function. And there's different types of stress. So we have short-term and acute stress. And it's that long-term chronic stress that's damaging. And those stress hormones, they inhibit a process that I cannot pronounce. (laughs) Anoikis? Anoikis. I don't know. But anyway, that chronic stress, that that leads to an increase in the production of certain growth factors that increase your blood supply. And that, that can speed the development of cancerous tumors. So it's that process that can really impact the cancer growth. And so just, just, you know, don't stress out. Amelia, quit stressing out. No, absolutely. So even in a, in a very simplistic view, stress, you know, especially chronic stress will cause your body to be in that fight or flight mode for a very long time. And you don't go into that first parasympathetic state, which you need for resting and digesting and healing. So if you think about somebody who's been under a lot of stress, we know that stress lowers your immune system. I mean, we talk about it during the pandemic right now. So I was, I have a moment last week when I was very stressed out. And this discussion that we had the week before kept me going because I was like, I will not let stress take over my body because I do not want cancer. I do not want the impact of hypertension and stroke and all that stuff because we know stress is has been correlated to so many diseases. So on that note, let's all take a moment this week to find time to de-stress, whether that is reading a good book meditating, doing some yoga, or if you find yourself in a beautiful location on the beach like Amelia is right now, go sit, walk, breathe. Amen to that. And just kind of like just closing thoughts. I know this Thanksgiving looks different than any other Thanksgiving. You know, the things that we used to do, gathering with a lot of people, gathering with our families to appreciate what we have for the year may not happen as easily 
So I, I just feel like, you know, just let's just all take a moment to be grateful for what we have this year. Because I know it's been such a hard journey for many people. And it's been, you know, a financial stress, emotional stress, just, just all the unknowns and all the fear. So I am just sending all positive thoughts to everyone out there to have a lovely Thanksgiving. I second that. Sending everyone a virtual hug, a prayer of peace. So happy Thanksgiving to everyone and happy Thanksgiving to you, Amelia, my good friend. Have a great, great day. Thank you. See ya. Please subscribe to the Spot Check from your provider of choice. Show notes and links can be found at the spotcheckpodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram. Amelia is the lymph therapist and Heather is the medical SLP. 